Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 184. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at Network Nerd underscore on Twitter, joined by my co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. Hey John, how's it going? I'm doing great, Nick. Hey everybody, we are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations, and we hope our career discussion will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. If you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at NerdJourney. All of you on Overcast, we see you. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, John. This is part two with Michael Levan. He is the host of the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast on Packet Pushers Network. So go check that out if you want to learn more about Kubernetes and the space around it. You know, if you missed part one and episode 183, go check that out. We talked about things like focus, fitness for the body and mind, nutrition, deep work, and how all this comes into building habits. And Michael is a technology professional with a fitness trainer background. Who is, he's the first one with that profile who's been on the show. So it was an interesting conversation, I thought. What's on tap this week, John? I just want to chime in and say that idea of atomic ha habits just came up a lot in episode 183. Um, so if you are interested in building new habits, you know, be that professionally or in your personal life, Michael's discussion there I thought was especially relevant. And if you need to build the habit of subscribing to the podcast, it's just it's just one click. Smash that subscribe button. Yeah. If you could go ahead and smash the like button and click the bell for uh, choose all notifications, you'll be uh, reminded every time we release uh, something new on YouTube, which is, uh, oh man, we need to build a YouTube channel, don't we? Okay. Uh, I'll add that to the to-do list, but everybody else, uh, while while you're you're waiting for us to do, do that, uh, smash the bell. The... Um, actual part of the episode that very selfishly for me was fascinating was um, hearing about Michael's, you know, journey from infrastructure practitioner to software engineer to DevOps and SRE roles, um, kind of playing in that space and now kind of consulting um, in that space. That is something that not a lot of infrastructure professionals feel comfortable you know, thinking about as a potential career path. Like a lot of us like are doing infrastructure and, you know, we think to ourselves, well, you know, I didn't go to college and get a degree in computer science. So doing programming is just, you know, something that obviously is not for me. And um, I think Michael puts lie to that idea. And I think that it's worth listening to his discussion and his career trajectory there. Also, you know, again, very, very selfishly, uh, he gave me some uh, advice on how to learn a programming language. So uh, listen for that part. Rather than uh, recounting any additional things that we're about to hear, Nick, um, why don't I just throw it straight to episode 184, part two of two with Michael Levin.
Can we flip over maybe to talking a little bit about your career? Because I look at your LinkedIn and it's fascinating to see, you know, where it is that you are. You know, we've been talking almost exclusively about fitness and eating and deep work. And you rattle off like just a list of, you know, interesting technologies that focus more along kind of what I think of about as like, you know, kind of the modern like development platform of, you know, containers and Kubernetes. What is the path, you know, that kind of led you there? How did you get started on that walk, I guess? Yeah, so uh, I'll keep it brief, but uh, just ask me to go any deeper if you'd like me to. I started out my career in systems administration. I loved it. Like I was in Active Directory and Exchange and Windows Server and all these things. I was primarily a Windows sysadmin. And then once like PowerShell started to become a thing, more or less, I started to be more interested in like automation and stuff. And I remember like the first thing that I ever wrote was in PowerShell to like get hyper VVMs. And like I did like get, uh, I don't even remember what the command is, get VM, get hyphen VM. And it just like came back to these VMs and I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and then it just kind of escalated from there. Like I started to learn more about PowerShell and then I started to learn about Python. And then I kind of dove into like this DevOpsy style cloud engineer SRE arena because I had the infrastructure background already. And I always say that it's easier to move from, from infrastructure to development than it is from development to infrastructure. Because in in development, there's a ton of infrastructure and a ton of networking that's being done that you still need to know, especially in this cloudy world that we're in. And then when I was in like the DevOps and SRE arena, like I, I also had like a couple software developer roles and consulting from a software development perspective. And I still do that stuff now. You know, I still I primarily write in Go python sometimes i just got off of a consulting engagement like a month ago where i was writing a bunch of python but like primarily go and i teach go and all that stuff so my career kind of went from like systems administration to like starting to understand automation to combining both of those in that sre devopsy style role um, and then to kind of just like doing whatever i wanted with those in the you know orchestration and container space SRE being Site Reliability Engineering, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Sorry, acronyms. <laughs> That's okay. And how would how would you define the difference in what a SRE does and what a infrastructure admin does? Nothing. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I I hate titles to be honest. Um, can't stand it. Uh, I, I here's the reality. I think that if everybody could just be called an engineer and be done with it our lives would be 10 times easier. Uh, I think the only reason that we care about titles at this point is because there are certain pay scales to each title. But really what an, what an infrastructure engineer is doing is they're worrying about the overall architecture, where it's running, how it's running, VMs, bare metal, cloud, how the systems are performing, right? And SRE is worrying about all of that stuff and they're also taking into account heavy observability and monitoring and heavy repeatability to make this infrastructure and the architecture that they're deploying repeatable. So really the only difference, right, high level, the only difference is that SREs are more focused on the repeatability and automation aspect of things. However, I haven't seen an infrastructure engineer role in quite a while now that didn't require you to know some type of automation and some type of repeatability, whether it's Terraform, whether it's some other configuration language, whether it's a scripting programming language. So I don't really see a difference anymore, to be honest. Um, I also don't see a difference between like 
a DevOps engineer and an SRE. I, I see a difference in like a build engineer versus an SRE because a build engineer is really just focusing on the CIC aspect of things. But when do you ever come across just a build engineer role anymore? So it's, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, there are people that are focused on code. There are people that are focused on infrastructure, whether it's in the cloud, on-prem, whatever. And then all of those people are just focused on both at the same time, right? Because you can't run code by itself. You got to run it somewhere. Yes, yeah, serverless, I know, fine. Um, but and you can't run, you can't worry about performance of systems without something running on those systems. So it's just like, it's all, it kind of jumbles up to me, to be honest, in, in today's world. Like, I really don't see a huge difference in roles anymore. I think maybe the one subtlety which I kind of tripped across was the idea of like development cycle, mm -hmm. like how fast that's going. And like a DevOps engineer or an SRE is really supporting like development cycles that are much, much faster than like maybe a traditional infrastructure engineer who is d more supporting like waterfall style cycles where like you know oh, there's a big change every you know nine months or 18 months or every four years you know and the devops engineer or sre is supporting something that might be changing 30 times a day True. right there could be like different rollouts so the availability requirements are you know slightly different you know like a sre might measure that in minutes per month as opposed to you know maybe a traditional engineer who's measuring that it's like oh hey we have a maintenance window this saturday right and it's like we're gonna be down for four hours and an sre would be like four hours <laughs> a year like what you know what are you talking about like you know uh you know and then what is even availability right like when when you enter something into the search bar and you hit search and nothing happens and then you hit search again and something happens like like, how do you measure that as available, like, or not available? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I I think the better way that I could have explained that was there are the roles, like, in government and healthcare and larger organizations that have not adapted new standards. But if you have adapted new standards, I don't see the difference. But if you're still in that, like, like you said, that, like, I'm going to call it old school, waterfall and, like, everything's super slow and government <laughs> then yes uh you know i i i spent uh i i i was i was in a government job and like a sysadmin sys infrastructure engineer style government job and i lasted like i think six months i was like i'm out of here i can't do it I'm too slow so yeah like if i think if people are in those style roles yeah i absolutely agree with you 100 percent. and those roles still very much exist yeah like that that slow those slow paced environments still very much exist what i would recommend is if you're in that style role and you want to be more you want to be a little bit more fast paced i would say you know go to like a startup go to something right and try your best to get out of that role because the problem with those roles are like what what happens if you get laid off or something right and then you try to get into the job market now where everything's moving much faster and everybody's in a much different pace i think it's just harder to get a job right if you're if you're in that like old style way of thinking does that make sense i feel like i just kind of stumbled a little bit on my words but I think it does make sense. Yeah, okay. If you are in one of those positions that maybe doesn't move as fast, 
see if you can find some applicable ways to incorporate some of those automation technologies into what you're doing, even if it's in small steps. Yeah, totally agree. Um, going back to the <laughs> the short stint at the government that I did, uh, one of the things that I did, because again, it was I had like maybe an hour or two of work every day at that. Uh, I spent the rest of the time like automating stuff that like didn't need to be automated like at all. Um, but I just did it because I'm like, what else am I going to do? But that, that gave me two things. Number one, I was able to help out from an automation standpoint. Number two, I was able to take those skills that I learned. I pretty much just got paid to learn to go get my next job. So there's, there's different, there's a multiple, multiple different ways that you can think about it. But, uh, you know, exactly like you just said, if, if things are slow, learn how to do things in a better way and take those new things that you learned and go get paid more somewhere else. It's, it's fascinating that, you know, from my perspective to hear about this journey from, you know, infrastructure guy into kind of, you know, DevOps, uh, SRE type of work and then training people, you know, in those technologies, it's not something that is traditional, right? It's what's traditional for developers is to come from like, a school where they studied CS, mm -hmm. computer science, mm -hmm. or maybe starting to get a little bit more prevalent, like they went to a coding boot camp. But for an infrastructure engineer, there is like this built-in way to get involved, a little bit more involved in programming, mm -hmm. right? Via what we used to call scripting. You know, it's like, oh, it's a scripting language. It's not really programming. I was like, well, is it? Wow, that seems like an artificial uh, distinction to make, right? And and now more and more we don't make that distinction. Mm -hmm. So you start out with uh, you know automation. What is what is the next step there to kind of like kick it up and to maybe professionalize what it is that some somebody is doing there? Because like I definitely you know fumbled around like playing around with Python, and then I got caught up with this like oh clean code and like you know, readability. And it got to be a little bit overwhelming, to be honest. You know, it was like, oh, am I learning this the right way? Am I writing this the right way? It became a little bit difficult to see like the iterative path for somebody who's coming from an infrastructure background. Do you, do you have any uh, tips or ideas there? Yeah. So I, and, and this is like the same rule for anything in technology. Everything makes sense once you dive as deep as you possibly can into it. So if let's say you take an hour free YouTube Python course, uh, and then you try to go and you try to learn about, you know, uh, test driven development and clean code and structuring and what folders should look like and where your application should sit and what dependencies are here and where those dependencies should be and all that stuff, how you're importing uh, different functions are using sub function, like all this stuff, right? Like if you try to, if you try to just like go into this head first, it's not going to make any sense. But if you take that free YouTube course and then you go and you apply it, and then you go and you take another course and then you go and you apply that and then maybe you build a little web app and then, oh, maybe I want to build a little game. And you kind of just keep learning the core piece of the language or just programming in general, right? Because once you get to a certain point in programming, all languages just kind of blend together. They're all doing the same thing. But once you un fully understand programming and the concept of I'm writing human readable code to talk to a computer in ones and zeros and in hex and to make it do a thing, right? You pretty much what programming is, is 
you're giving your computer instructions. You're giving it a blueprint to go do a thing. Once you understand from a like a that computer science perspective from that programming perspective like whatever language you go with once you fully understand that language then the things like test driven development clean code how you should be architecting your application that's all going to make sense but i think what ends up happening is again this instant gratification right people take a one hour course and they're like now i'm going to go do all this stuff and then they dive into it and they're like this is so confusing and then they kind of lose hope a little bit but if you take the time to like really dive into it and go as deep as possible until you're like googling around and looking at this course and looking at that course and you're like huh there's kind of nothing left here then you dive a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and then before you know it you're just naturally in the, the the clean code space the test driven development all that stuff and those more advanced things got it so you're, you're saying the 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 trap is to worry about those things too early like yep. don't worry about like the phd level concepts and mm-hmm. until you've gotten your uh, training wheels off the bike yeah wow, that's two mixed metaphors <laughs> well i'm gonna throw in a third so it sounds to me like you're saying we should go down the rabbit hole as far as it goes yep how do you know when to come back out? It's a good question. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a high level answer and then I'm gonna hopefully dive into it. I think it's a, it's based on experience. So there's a big difference between a junior level engineer, a mid level engineer, a senior engineer, and then a principal, right? Junior is like you're fixing bugs and you're trying to figure out what technology is in the first place. Mid-level is like, ah, maybe you're working on a feature or two, you're actually in the code, right? Senior is like, okay, maybe you're actually building this application. Principal, staff, whatever is like, okay, I'm architecting this. Once you get to a certain experience level, once you have played with different technologies, once you have worked in different environments, once you have built different platforms, you know, like, okay, I'm a little bit too far here. I'm going a little bit off track. Now, that doesn't help the people that are junior or mid-level, <laughs> but that's my take on if you're at a certain point in your career, that would be the best way. Like You just kind of know if you're going too deep in. From a junior and mid-level perspective, the way that I would look at it is if you're like keep buying more and more courses, like if you're like going on Pluralsight and you're going on Code Academy and you're going on uh, Udemy and you're going on YouTube and you keep buying this stuff but you're not learning anything new, that's when you should be like, oh, okay, I guess it's time for the next level now. So I guess I would, I guess my thing is like, once you like take those like beginner to intermediate level courses, right? Cause they're all over the place. Like you can go sign up for all these different services. You're going to see a bunch of different beginner to intermediate level courses. Um, you're going to go through all them. All of them are going to teach you kind of the same thing, but kind of in a different way. And then once, once the light bulbs aren't going off anymore, once you're like sitting there like, uh-huh, yep. 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 That's when you can be like, okay, I think I got the beginner to intermediate level stuff down. Let me take it. Let me take it to the next level. And that's a journey that you'll have to learn within itself. Right. Because you could, you could accidentally go down the path of, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh for two weeks. And you're like, oh, could have started doing this two weeks ago. Right. In the grand scheme of things, like figuring something like that out two weeks, you know, past when you could have like optimally changed is not that big a deal. Exactly. Yeah. It's really not. Yeah. If you're, if you're a year down the path, eh, maybe you got to think about, think about switching things up a bit, but you know, yeah. Yeah. It's, I guess it's this interesting balance because, you know, when you're programming, like a lot of what you 
learn the way that at least I effectively learn is by actually doing a project, mm-hmm. right? You know, doing a little, little project like while you're learning the language and it drives you forward to like keep on learning, right? Otherwise, like how do you motivate yourself to mm-hmm. like abstractly, I want to be good at Python. Like there's, there's no like abstract thing that'll like help you like get in and keep on making that transition from like, oh, I'm doing stuff in infrastructure to like, oh, here's this like, you know, code base that I'm maintaining. Like that's a, that's a really big jump. And so there's got to be something that you're working on there. Mm -hmm. But then there's this, once you're working on a project and it's something that you're interested enough that's keeping you motivated, you also want to do it right. So that's when you start, at least myself, I start diving into like, oh, well, you know, maybe I should be learning test-driven development because like that would help me optimally do this project. Or, you know, I also want to be able to like, you know, have this code be maintainable. So maybe I should be, you know, coding up with clean coding standards. So there's, I guess, this conflict of, you know, wanting to like do all these things all at once and then to actually learn the language enough for, for any of that to make sense. It's almost like you're saying... And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. No, you should do it and have like in a way that like an experienced like engineer would look at and say, oh, that's not the optimal way to build it. And that's, you know, obviously you're not you're not testing for the right things. And obviously, you know, this is not, you know, maintainable by a third party because like I don't know what any of these, you know, variables means or what these modules are doing. But until you've done it that way and then realize at the end of it, like, oh, I actually, I built this thing and I don't know what this part of the code does. I actually, I guess I need to, to rebuild it in a way like that's you, like you have to go through that journey. Like you can't, there's no shortcut. It's like, oh, I'll just learn to code clean from the beginning. It's like, well. Yeah, I, I would, I would actually argue that I don't believe that there's a right or wrong way to do something in the beginning. I, I, cause I, I totally understand what you're saying. Cause I've felt that way too, where it's like, I'm learning something new and I'm like, well, I want to do it the right way. So let me go look at the best practices and the standards and this and that. But when you're first learning how to do something, like there isn't a right or wrong way. I mean, every developer that I've ever worked with more or less have their own way of writing code right? Have their own practices, their own standards, what IDE they're using, if they're using an IDE at all, how they're bringing in packages, how they're versioning, all this stuff. Like it's always kind of different. So I actually think that there are less bad practices than most people think. Now, if you're a principal architect and you're still uh, committing secrets to a public source control repo, eh, I don't know, maybe somewhere you got, you got, you got lost along the way, but like the, like when you're like getting into something for the first time, like a language, enjoy the process. Like, I, I think that's a, that's a big thing from like a, um, a deep work standpoint as well as like, we're so focused in today's world on like getting to the end state, getting really good at this thing, knowing it all that we're, that we don't like, we don't enjoy the process, right? Like mess up, go, go a year messing things up and learn from, from that process. Cause that's, that's the only way to do it. The only way to be truly great at something is to fail far more times than succeed. And I'm getting philosophical. I'm sorry. I, I swear we're still talking about code. Uh- <laughs> no, but this is good. It's a like, 
we just keep coming back to the philosophical standpoint. I, I feel like you're just telling people you should enjoy learning. I mean, yeah. imagine that. Saying. That's what I'm saying. You know, it's funny. I, uh, I have a, a cousin that he just graduated and he's, he's going for his master's. And he was asking me like, oh, like this data science thing looks really cool. And, you know, there's a lot of money in it. And I'm like, don't get into tech if you don't enjoy it. Don't do it for the money because... You know, I, I know that it's uh, I know that it's better to cry in a Bentley than it is in a Honda Civic, but you're going to cry nonetheless and it's not going to feel good. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you got to You got to enjoy the learning process. You got to enjoy like diving into the language. You got to enjoy playing around with the technology and you have to enjoy the process. Like if you're so focused on the end goal of like, I need the code to do this. I need to be great here. I need to understand this. It's like you're almost like missing the point of like why you're doing it in the first place. Right. Whereas if you take the time to go through the process and be truly great at it, you know, then you get to the point where, you know, you're, you're happy and you're learning those things naturally. Cause those things just end up coming up. That's amazing. That's a, that's a really good contextual state to start from. Um, because then the setbacks don't feel like setbacks. Oh yeah. Like maybe it's technically a setback for this little project, but really, it is a step forward for me in my learning journey. That's something that is really difficult to conceptualize until you take a step back. <laughs> yeah, no, and make no mistake, this is arguably one of the most difficult things that you'll do. Still, like I'm still working on stuff that I'm like, I just want to get it done, and I'm not. In, I'm, I'm catching myself not enjoying the process, and I do it arguably every single day. What I'm preaching, I also practice, but I'm not saying that I don't have the same pitfalls. We all do. Again, we're human, right? But what I am saying is you you can take yourself to the next level once you start to catch it. And when you, once you start to realize, ah, I'm not, I'm not enjoying the process to focus on the end goal, right? Once you, once you can start to think about these things that, that we're talking about on this podcast, once those things are like coming into your mind and you're catching yourself thinking about those things, that's when you know you're taking you've taken it yourself to the next level. Because it's not about being perfect. Like you're never you all the things that we're talking about on this podcast. You're never gonna like do all of them 100 percent for the rest of your life. Like if that was the case, like we'd all be millionaires, right? We would we would read some self help books and all be on yachts right now, uh, drinking mojitos. Like, but that's not like not the case, right? Like, that's not reality. Reality is is that. We are humans. We will mess up. We will constantly fail. But the difference is if you're going to fail, are you willing to get back up? If you are, that differentiates you from 90% of the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it was easy, it wouldn't be worth doing. Right. Both philosophically and like compensation wise. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, if, if, if it was easy, everybody would be billionaires right now. That's the reality. If it was easy, everybody would be successful. But it's not easy which is why not everybody is successful. Yeah. Well, another thing that isn't that easy is deciding to start your own business. <laughs> and that's that's something that I've never done, but you decided to, at some point, strike it out on your own. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? I think that there were two to three primary reasons uh, that I wanted to do this. Number one, I'm clearly very opinionated. So I... I got to a point where I didn't want to, how can I put it? Almost like I didn't want to listen to others. But what I mean by that is not in like a, I know everything type of way. What I mean is like, 
Have you ever been working on something and it's like super critical for the business from a technological standpoint? It's like, you know that this thing is like exactly what you're supposed to be doing, but then like manager or CEO or whoever comes to you and says, Hey, we need you to do this. It's half of the value that you're putting into this other thing. It probably doesn't make any sense, or maybe it does to a certain extent, but not as much sense as this thing over here, but you have to do it anyways because it's your job. I hate that. I hate the feeling of not being able to generate as much value as possible because of this politic or because of this manager or because of that thing. I hate the feeling of being told not to do something that's driving value. It absolutely drives me crazy. And it's arguably the thing that makes me the most irritated and frustrated like in life. That was, that, that was definitely one of the biggest things that I wanted to work on the things that I wanted to work on because I know that the things that I'm working on are generating value. Whereas when you're working for a company, a lot of the times you're working on things because you have to, <laughs> but there's never like a reason. Like, it's just like, oh, the business needs this. And it's like, well, why? And it's like, blah, 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 something, something. Right. So I hated that. Like, absolutely can't stand it. The next thing is I don't like putting my fate into the hands of others. I have this conversation all the time where people ask me, you know, or people tell me, well, having a full-time job is more stable. I would argue that having a full-time job is far less stable than going out on your own. And here's why. Two reasons. Number one, you're putting your fate into somebody else to do their job correctly. The sales team or the marketing team or the CEO. If they don't do their job and the company goes down or there's layoffs or there's cuts, this, that you're at jeopardy and you did nothing wrong, maybe. Uh, But in that case, you didn't do anything wrong, right? So you're putting your fate into the hands of others in that case. Number two, you are getting this paycheck every week or every two weeks. And that's what makes you feel like, oh, this thing, this the, the boat's still cruising, right? But one day, it could go away. And then what? You had one source of income. You had, you, you, you don't have anything else lined up because you were focused on this job. So you're putting your fate into the hands of others to keep your currency flowing so you can pay your mortgage. Whereas when you're on your own, if something goes wrong, probably your fault. You can learn from it and you can adapt and you can change, but everything is on your shoulders. And that's a phenomenal thing because if something goes wrong, you can change it and you can make it better, right? When you're working on your own, hopefully you have multiple income streams. And if you have multiple income streams, if one thing goes away, depending on the client, depending on the size of of the the amount that you're getting and all that stuff, it may sting a little bit. But the thing is, is that you have others. So you're not focused. You don't have that one income stream. You have multiple things going on that you can fall back on. And when something goes wrong with maybe a client, you just go get another one, right? It's all on you. Now, the third reason is because... I don't like being told that I can't work on certain things. Uh, I I kind of talked about this already in point number one, but this point is slightly different. To give you an example, I just spoke at the AWS summit a couple of days ago. If I'm working for somebody else, they have every right to tell me, no, you can't do that. No, you can't go talk on this topic. No, you can't take off work for that. Can't stand that. I, I I I don't want somebody else telling me how to live my life and telling me what I can and can't work on. I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm very passionate about technology. I want to play around and work on all these cool things. If somebody says, oh, you can't, 
And I say why, and there's not a good reason because there's never a good reason of why you can't actually go and play with something else that irks me. So I, I, those those are those are kind of my three reasons, right? I, I truly, truly believe that you're more stable working for yourself than you are for others, and that paycheck coming in every two weeks is just a I don't I, I'm I'm blanking on the word here, but it's just a fantasy to you're stable because you're only you're only as stable as the other 10 or 20 or 5,000 people doing their job. If they're not doing your, their job, you're not very stable. What's interesting with what you said was it kind of taps into something that I think we've talked about before, which is that humans are bad at judging risk, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe even like intentionally we don't want to face what is risky, right? Like, cause you could be working for a business you could see that a business is in trouble from an outside perspective and that time is limited, but you can also see people at that business who don't want to acknowledge that, who ride it all the way down and then are upset that their last paycheck doesn't clear. And so one of the things that one needs to do, I guess, if one is like working for a company is to have a really good way of judging the enterprise risk, you know, the existential risk of that company. Like what what is going to affect that company, you know, positively or negatively, especially negatively. Under work, what circumstances, you know, is this uh, business going to uh, be under stress? Like if you work in the travel industry, you might work in tech and say, well, you know, that's the most stable job, blah, blah, blah. But what if you work for tech in the, in the travel industry during the pandemic, you know, you might be under a lot, you know, the business might be under a lot of strain because nobody's spending money on travel, you know, because they can't. Or geographically, you might be concentrated, you know, in the Midwest or the Southwest or Pacific Northwest, you know, like, oh, hey, that's where all our business comes from. And then there's like a natural disaster that hits that region and, you know, all commerce comes to a screeching halt or, or something, you know. There's this idea of like diversifying you know, your income across, you know, multiple, you know, risk zones. And it seems to be what you're talking about. It's like, well, if I'm consulting and I'm working for myself, I could be consulting for businesses in multiple different industries in multiple different geographies. So any one thing that hits me or hits, you know, the client, you know, that's going to take out 5% of my income and not a hundred percent if I work for them directly. And the case where I'm going to be in real trouble, like some kind of like global existential risk is going to hurt me, even if I'm working for an individual company, because that's going to hurt everybody. Yeah, I would say there's, there's a middle ground too. if you're working for somebody and you didn't sign a moonlighting clause stating that you cannot moonlight means legally you can moonlight. And regardless of how much they try to threaten you with HR, there's nothing they can do about it legally. They can make your life they can make your life awful, but they can't fire you. So it depends on how much stuff you can take. But so so there is that, right? But th- then you gotta worry about politics and this person talking about, yeah, and they them trying to get rid of you and it's, it's not worth it. I mean, but there are also companies that are okay with you doing side stuff. I know a lot of companies that are okay with colleagues of mine creating courses and doing all of this stuff. And, you know, like you guys, 
you guys have full-time jobs and, and, and you got a podcast, right? These things are a reality and you can do them. But then I will challenge you to say, how much time do you have to do these things if you have a full-time job? And how much can you truly diversify without working 15 hours a day? Depends on the job, depends on the workload. Uh, if you know, if you work in government, for example, you'll have no problem diversifying. <laughs> De- all depends on what you do. All, all depends on the the industry that you work in and all that stuff. I've found time and time again that I am far more stable working for myself. The other big part of it too is you know I got money in the bank, sitting there for a rainy day. The next phase is I got a bunch of equity in my house, right? The next phase is I got, you know, a bunch of stuff in, in stocks and all that, right? So they're like, I, I, I'm, I'm very uh, particular with how I do my finances, which also makes me feel a little bit better because <laughs> I know that it's going to take something like me not making money for a year to like be like, uh-oh. Well, you did the work to get financially fit yes. as part of this. Did you moonlight before to build a client base or was it just a a clean break one day no i was moonlighting uh, a little bit and you know and then i've like went back to jobs and then i've left and you know i've built up just like my reputation and stuff in general um it was a combination it it wasn't like a i had a full-time job left and then i became successful there was a lot of bad months there was a lot of uh uncertainty Right. There was a lot of I'm going to be by my I'm going to work on my own. Then I'm going to go back full time and work on my own. I'm going to go back full time. Uh, there was a lot of going back and forth. Right. To really get myself to a stable situation. I also arguably have a little bit of an easier time not making money um, because I, I grew up very poor. Right. I had I had nothing growing up. So when I was going through the transition of like going out on my own and stuff in the beginning and not making money, like I wasn't like terribly hurt about it. It, it depends on people's, um, uh, depends on people's mindset. You know, like if, if you grew up in like a home that like there was a, there was a lot of money to go around and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to go out on my own and I'm going to make no money. It might sting a little bit versus if you're used to not having money. All depends. All, all depends on, on your, your past experience and all that stuff. And it also depends on like how bad you want it. I know what I want out of life uh, and I know what I need to do to get it. Uh, And things, you know, aren't going to like always be peachy, right? Like there's going to be months where like, I'm not going to make money. Just like there's going to be times where people are going to get laid off. Like it's, there's so many factors uh, that, 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 that go into the decision. Hard to insure yourself against the sure thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I I don't I don't I don't believe in uh like this level of stability that people think. Uh, I don't believe in sure things. I I believe that everything is always moving, uh, and you have to be moving with it or be prepared to fail. That's how it's got to be. Again, I think that's what separates like you know people that are successful being on their own and just in life in general, right? And people that are not. And when I say success, like I'm not talking about like money, right? Like I, you never make enough money like i've you know i've had months where like i made nothing and then i've had months where i'm like making somebody's salary like it, it it all depends right but like i'm not talking about success from a financial standpoint i'm talking about success from like how do you feel and are you prepared for life because you know 
I'll pull out a, uh, a, a Sylvester Stallone quote, like, nothing's going to hit you harder than life. If anybody has watched Rocky, great movies. Um, like, But it's true, like, nothing is going to hit you harder than life, and, like, you have to be prepared for it. And if you're not prepared for it, and if life smacks you in the face, and you're like, oh, like, you got to go back and be like, why were you not prepared for it? So it's, uh, it's just uh, the the uncomfortable reality of success. That's really good. I like that. <laughs> the quote was from the movie Rocky Balboa, by the way. Yes. Great movie. Yeah. I, I, arguably, I think that was the best one in, in the series. I think that was I, a very good I one. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that was a very good one. Although, I know we're going off track here, but uh, what was uh, Michael B. Jordan? What was the uh, Creed. Creed. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, it was a good one, too. I think that you talked about several things there. De-risking in a, in a bunch of different ways, mm-hmm. you know, financially, diversification, even the process of de-risking the process of, you know, striking out on your own, you know, kind of straddling and, you know, maybe somebody else going through that process could, would realize, Oh wait, you know, I have the capability of working for like a really stable company and I don't yet have the skills to be valuable enough to be, you know, to, to actually have like a de-risked consulting business. Right. Right. So I need to hang back a little bit and develop more skills. It sounds like it's a process and not, you know, something that is just you flip a light switch. And that I think that clarification is super helpful for me to understand. The first two times I tried going out on my own, I failed miserably, blew through stupid amount of savings. And the reason why was because I did not have the skills. Like you were saying, I was not valued enough in this space to consider myself an independent consultant. And you're absolutely right. You have to build yourself to a certain point. However, you don't know you're there yet until you give it a shot. <laughs> like I was, I learned very quickly the first few times. Uh, uh-uh, Nope, not yet. <laughs> abort, abort, go back. <laughs> but you know, then, then a time comes and you're like, Oh, okay. You know, I'm ready. Uh, and I, I don't, I really don't think that you know until you give it a shot. But if you give it a shot, make sure that you're in, you know, a good situation. Like the first time that I did it, I was not in a good financial situation. I was like, I'll be fine. I was not fine. <laughs> the second time I did it, I was in a better financial situation. But because I was not ready, I blew through all my money. So I was not fine again. Luckily, in today's tech world, if you are up to date on your skills, it is arguably incredibly, incredibly straightforward to find a job. I, I, it's like I keep reading daily that like there's way too many engineering jobs open and not enough people to fill them. There's always the I'll be fine thing, right? Which the world that we live in now, uh, it's easy to say that, right? Like five years ago, 10 years ago, maybe it wasn't. But now it is. And if you always have in-demand skills... Uh, you'll always be able to find something. But again, it goes back to the de-risking like you were just talking about. To have those skills takes time and effort and and you have to build those skills. And that's part of de-risking. Like part of de-risking in the tech space is making sure that you're up to date. Yeah, and what you just talked about, like the cycles of like, you know, not enough people. You know, sometimes the cycle is like, man, there's just seems to be too many people and not enough jobs. But I think maybe what it means is that you build up those skills and then you realize, oh, okay, we're in this like, you know, labor shortage 
cycle and that's that could last for nine months or a year or a couple years it's lasted for more than a few years now so you know now's the time for me to test myself Mm -hmm. right yeah so i've built up i you know maybe this is kind of like you know like a a back to you know powerlifting competition right it's like you train and you train and you train and then you realize oh like i i can i know how to peak you know get myself into like kind of my peak level of fitness and I need to have that correspond with a time where I can test myself, but very safely if I realize that, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, like I don't measure up that I can take a step back and go back into like safe training mode. And there's a key thing there that you just said, you got to do it to know. If, right. you, if you never try, like if you never, you know, go out on your own, you're never going to know you're ready until you do it. Um, same thing like you just had with powerlifting, like you need to push yourself to know where you're at. And then at that point, you know, you either need to take a step back or you can continue going forward. And there's, there's always that balance. And we, we always have to play that balance in life in general, right? With everything that we do, there's always that, okay, let's try this. Oh, maybe I take a step back or, oh yeah, we can keep moving forward. So there's, there's, there's always that balancing act for sure. But what I will say with the utmost confidence is there's no way to know you're ready to go out on your own until you give it a shot. And that can be scary, but I think staying at a company too long is scary too. Well, this, this has come full circle back to what you said, not only about the fitness stuff, but about the learning, yep. the mindfulness of, Oh, okay. Am I too deep? Am I not deep enough? Just to your analogy, John, about the, the lifting, am I at the right level? It's sort of like the balance is the mindfulness about the feedback loop that you should constantly put yourself through. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, you have to. Uh, And it all goes back to exactly like you said, like the first 20 minutes of the podcast, we were talking about deep work, understanding habits, understanding how to build yourself, all of that. Like it all stems from there. Everything that I'm talking about all stems from there. Like this, you know, the things that I'm talking about are achievable by every single person in the world. Like I promise if I can do it, some random guy from New Jersey, you can absolutely do it too. Like there's, there's nothing stopping anybody from doing it. Actually, no, I'm sorry. There is something stopping everybody from doing it. It's themselves. You're stopping yourself from doing it. The second that you get over that hurdle and go do what you want to do, you absolutely can. There's this, uh, I, I got to send you guys the, the, um, the YouTube link, but there's a very like old clip from Steve jobs from 90, the nineties, I guess. And he pretty much said that, like, I'm going to, I'm going to quote this terribly. Um, but he pretty much said that, you know, we all, we all live in a world where there's this path, right? You wake up, you, you go to school, you get a good job, you get married, you have a family, you have some money in the bank, and then you die. Pretty much the gist of most people's lives, right? Like that's kind of the 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 reality. But here's the thing, like, and this is what he said. This is I, I didn't make this up, so don't don't uh, give me credit for this. You know, once you like you poke life, and you realize that something can pop out the other side, you can't go back. Like you can't turn your you can't turn your mind off. You can't go back to the general and generic way of thinking once you realize that things don't have to be that way. And I think this is something that we forget. We're extremely lucky to be here. I think it's 
you have a one in five billion chance of being who you are. Like you have a one in five billion chance chance that the egg gets to where it's got to go for you to be born, right? Like that's a one in five billion chance. It's crazy that that we're that we're here and that we're able to be sitting here. So if you have a one in five billion chance in life, there's there should be no excuse for you to say, "Oh, I can't do this." The other reality is this too. Now, I'm sure I know you have a global audience, right? And I know that it's different in in different countries and stuff. But coming from a U.S. perspective, we live in a country that they will literally give you money to go and do things. <laughs> like, it's true. There's nothing stopping you from going and being successful. There's no excuse. Like, and that's that's always the thing that I think about is like, again, I grew up extremely poor. My life was not great. I statistically, I should not have ended up the way that I ended up. I probably again, statistically, right? Like I should have ended up in jail or an addict or something like not, not where I'm at now. That's for sure. There's nothing stopping anybody from going and doing it. Um, we, we, we have a very small lifespan, 80, 90, maybe 70 years. And, and the first 15 of those years might as well, the first 20 of those years might as well be thrown out anyways from, from a, the, the amount of time that you have to, to really build something. So when you think about it, you maybe have 30 to 50 years, if you're lucky, to like really do something. And that's not a lot of time. So if you're going to do it, you might as well just go and do it because we're humans. We're, we're not animals that we can't, that we don't have thumbs and that we can't think at a certain level, right? Like we all have the ability to go and do something. And I think that's something that every, every single, all of us take for granted. I take it for granted every day. And I think that everybody does as well. Um, but I think, you know, just thinking about that, thinking about, you know, if you have life and you poke it and something pops out the other direction, that's reality. Like you're, you can make your reality, whatever you want to make it. Sorry. I just went off on a huge tangent yeah. there, but uh. no, no, that's good. <laughs> I think that's a great it's not really a tangent. It's a good point, and I think we're going to have to end there. Thank you so much, Michael Levon, for joining us on our journey. Really enjoyed this conversation and your insights, and we look forward to following you from here. Any social media stuff you want to promote real quick? Yeah, so uh, you, you, everybody can follow me on uh, Twitter at the NJ DevOps guy. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn at Michael Levan, L-E-V-A-N. Uh, that's about all the social media that I have. Awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. This Kind of an awesome mic drop moment too. You know, not a tangent at all. It was, it was really terrific. Awesome. Thanks so much for spending time with us on the nerd journey. Thank you guys. John, that really was a personal counseling session for you. I mean, I, I have to say that I got some things out of it, but let's go ahead and hear it from you again. How'd that go? Yeah, I mean, why do a podcast if you can't get personal advice from people you know, who are talking about things that you find immediately personally relevant? And hopefully I was speaking with you know, the voice of the audience. And not just, you know, my, no, I was, it was really very, very personal to me. You know, why, <laughs> why uh, am I doing this the wrong way? And, you know, it turns out, you know, yeah, probably. 
um, you know, big shocker, but it's, it's fascinating to hear, you know, Hey, don't get caught up in like the kind of meta patterns of programming. If you're trying to learn a programming language, just try to learn the syntax and, and how to get stuff done and worry about like the big picture view a little bit later, which is, you know, makes sense. But, you know, for those of us who have expertise in other things, you know, we're used to thinking about that, like the larger pattern, the overall vision, the, the doing things correctly from, you know, the very beginning. And it's very easy to lose touch with the, oh, you actually just need to like focus on getting some super basic things down right and not worry about big picture stuff. If you're learning a language, don't also try to learn how to do clean code. You know, if you're learning a language, don't also try to learn how to do test-driven development. Just learn the language syntax and get comfortable in it. And then learn those things after you're comfortable with the language. Gave me great advice on that. You know, that makes absolute sense. You know, now I know how to learn Python a little bit better. And I'm going to immediately apply that to learning Rust because um, I'm done learning Python. <laughs> uh, I'll come back to that later. Come back well, to I, that later. I, I will say, John... You know, I don't think you're special enough to say that you are the only person who has ever overanalyzed something to the point of paralysis because I've done it many, many times. What I really like is that this focused approach to going deep, right? Focusing on a thing and diving deeper pulls you away from the overanalysis because you you get into the trees and looking around and looking at the leaves and the bark and and stop looking at the forest and and trying to figure out yeah. the best point of entry. So uh, the the fact that we called it a rabbit hole approach, I just really like that term and that it has a connotation of helping you to learn faster while being extremely focused. Yeah, I mean, another way to put it, I think what you just touched on there is like, don't miss the trees for the forest, right? When we're used to seeing, you know, big picture, like having zoomed in on something and then built out our knowledge base and our expertise to like, again, think big picture, you know, thinking about the forest, then you lose sight of the fact that in this new thing, you don't know the tree detail yet. So don't miss the trees for the forest. Trademark, trademark. Nobody else used that. That's us. That's uh, that's the title of our next talk, by the way, is Don't Miss the Trees for the Forest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Heard it here How first. How about that breakdown of the engineers at different levels and the skill sets and how you know you've progressed from one to the other? I really liked the way Michael oh, described that between senior and mid-level and junior engineer, principal. It, if you didn't catch that part, go back and listen to it again. It, it's just, I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was spectacular. Like some of the, you know, the things that you can look out for and, and the characteristics. And I've, I really felt like, oh, you can draw an analogy from that, like from developing software to kind of most things, right? This is where you are as a, um, apprentice. This is, you know, kind of the, the dreaming attitude and this is the, the master and then, you know, this is the head of the master's guild, right? So, um, like there's just different levels of knowledge and just, you know, super fascinating. It actually, um, makes me think about 
our you know solemn oath to each other that we were going to read and review uh, staff engineer right which we definitely we definitely have done listen if you uh can find the episode number and and tweet it at us where we definitely 100% already have definitely 100% already reviewed staff engineer we definitely have not done that um but but we will i'm sorry right um, it'll be in the same yeah, episode um, where john talks about how his learning rust is going Yes. You, you know, one of the things I like here, John, and I'll be curious to hear about it as you learn Rust, is were you able to enjoy the process and that we shouldn't lose sight of the joy? And I, I just feel like this goes back to the Bill Kendall episode 181 about his burnout and losing the joy of doing the thing that got you into this industry if we don't enjoy yes. the process of learning. Yeah, it was definitely something that I kept in mind and wrote down actually for that process, you know, as I'm moving forward, you know, one of the things that I always have to, you know, constantly check in with myself on is like, you know, am I enjoying this? Is this a project, you know, as a project, just the language learning, but also the project that I'm trying to execute, you know, while I'm learning the language, you know, are those both fun things for me? And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check back in because that's definitely worked in the past. Like if you want to go back and listen to um, how I became a Python expert, man, I forgot the uh, I forgot the episode number. Oh, that's right. Like I didn't do that and we never recorded an episode about that. But yeah. Besides that just didn't get published. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, we it did happen and we did record it. We just never published it. Come to me for your Python needs. Don't don't do that. Please don't do that. I feel like there's some other stuff there that Michael talked about that I found interesting. I think that you kind of pointed out to me the um, the career de-risking. De-risking by building skills and expertise. Yeah. I, again, love the learning, enjoy the process as a byproduct, not as an outcome, right? Not as a, oh, I'm going to get this. Yeah, surely we want that, right? But it's going to be a natural byproduct of the learning process and making sure you're still relevant in the job market. I think it goes back to process over outcomes, and I just re-listened to episode 19 the other day. Uh, okay. Process over outcomes. I think um, another thing for me was hearing about Michael's um, personal reasons for becoming a business owner and starting his own business and you know what that process looked like. And I think that you know goes into you know another one of our patterns is like you know how you how you practice the craft and you know are you working for a company are you you know in a small consultancy you know large company big company uh vendor manufacturer or do you work for yourself and you know this is another episode where somebody's you know started their own business and works for themselves and i think we'll we'll definitely call that out for people who are looking for interviews from a business owner's point of view rather than somebody who's an individual contributor at a company or a manager or even like a high level manager at a company or cio you know cto it's it's just a different different perspective very cool stuff yeah last thing i wanted to bring up is michael hitting on practicing our gratitude for what we have for the ability to go and do something really interesting make an impact in the world. And 
as listeners, we we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the guests that that come on the show and share expertise like this, so that we can learn and share it with you. Yeah, absolutely. Gratitude and humility. I think another one of those things. And all joking aside, we do try to channel, you know, the questions that we think people out there in the listening universe are asking and want us to ask. So hopefully that comes across. And if it if it never does, or you think that we're missing the ball on something, we'd love to hear from you so that we can uh, course correct on that. Absolutely. I think that's about it, John. Anything else pop into your mind while we talked? Uh, no, just a reminder again that we'd like people to sus- subscribe and uh, give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Again, Overcast listeners or users, we uh, we see you now. Uh, we want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. Like, are we asking the right questions to our guests? We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore for John White at B Journeyman, a.k.a. Daddy John, signing off. Adios.